We're glad you're here today. It is a great day to be together. We're grateful for the opportunity to be here today to worship God in spirit and in truth. If you're visiting, as always, we invite you to come back. We would love to have you come back and be with us again. It might be that you're traveling, and so we pray that your journeys might be safe. If you are looking for a church home, we certainly invite you to come again. We would love to have you come and be a part. We'd love to have you come and be a part of the church here. I just want to say, I'm not sure if you've seen this jacket to my right, but if you haven't, you need to see it. I guess Grant gets the coat of the day. Uh, that is a sharp coat. I need to get me one of those. You really look sharp today. So, just wanted to make that. Matter of fact, when I saw it, I almost lost my train of thought. <laughs> but we are glad you're here. We are talking today about what's right with the Church of Christ. And we've been talking the last couple of weeks about what's right with the Church of Christ. And we have heard many who have talked about things that they perceive to be wrong with the Church of Christ. And we have said that there is a divine side to the church that is the perfect side. There is the human element of the church that would be the imperfect side of the church. And those of us who belong to the family of God, we are a part of that imperfect part of the church. And so in our study today, we want to continue this theme and I want us to think today for a moment or two about what's right with the Church of Christ, and specifically the Church of Christ is right in her worship. Now, first of all, I would say that there are some principles that govern our worship. Secondly, based on what I read in Scripture, there is a pattern that would govern our worship to God. So let's think about that for just a moment or two. And I would invite you, if you have not been here the last couple of weeks, I would encourage you to maybe get a copy of the lesson, either a CD. It might be you want to get a printed copy of the outline so that you might share it with your friends and neighbors because what we're trying to do is point people back to Scripture and to emphasize what the Bible has to say. And so in John chapter 4, Jesus, as you well remember, said in the long ago in a conversation with a woman at Jacob's well, she was a Samaritan, and Jesus said to her, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There are some principles that Jesus cites here that I believe govern our worship to God. We're talking, as I said a moment ago, the Church of Christ is right in her adoration, that is, in her, in her worship. So what about these principles? Well, first and foremost, Jesus tells us that God is the aim of our worship. Listen again, Jesus said God is spirit and those who worship Him. Sadly, there are a lot of folks that do not understand when we come together on the first day of the week. It's not necessarily about us, though there are benefits to our worship. Ultimately, we come to praise God for all that He is and all that He has done. 
The word worship means acts of reverence paid to deity. And the idea is we are giving God that which He is rightfully due. You remember the psalmist said in Psalm 95 at verse 6, O come, let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. If you want to see what worship is all about, I would encourage you sometime this week to turn to the book of Isaiah and read Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah said in that context that he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne with regard to the one who was seated upon that throne. He said he was high and lifted up, which says to me that we're worshiping a God who is our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer. He is above all, isn't he? And as our creator, sustainer, and redeemer, he is worthy of our worship. And so to recognize that the aim of our worship is God. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 4, when tempted by the devil, that we are to worship the Lord our God and Him only are we to serve. We are here to bow in the presence of God and to recognize that we are in the presence of a holy God. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 3 when God instructed Moses and God called upon Moses to become the leader and lawgiver of ancient Israel? And God said on that occasion to remove his sandals. He said, for the ground whereon you're standing is holy ground. There is nothing intrinsically holy about this building or about this ground. But what is holy is the fact that we are in the presence of a holy God. So when we come together on the first day of the week, we come with the purpose of giving God that which ultimately belongs to Him or rightfully belongs to Him. Now, Jesus not only instructs us about the aim of worship, but He identifies the assembly of worship. He said God is, God is spirit. And those who worship Him, when we talk about worshiping God, sometimes we forget we are not the audience. We are the assembly. We have gathered here for the purpose of glorifying God, of worshiping Him. The audience is God. God is seated upon His throne and the worship is directed to Him. Now, again, there are benefits and blessings to our worship, but ultimately, we are here to glorify God, aren't we? So we're a part of the assembly. And then there is the absolute of worship. Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship Him, listen to what He said, must. That's an obligation. We have the obligation to worship God in a specific way. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But as we think about the absolute of worship, I said a moment ago, there is a pattern that we follow in our worship to God. It's not something that we have come up with. It's not something that we have originated. But rather, it is identified or spelled out in Scripture. In John chapter 3, you remember Jesus in His conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, of course, had come to Jesus to investigate more about Him as the Messiah, the Christ. As a matter of fact, He said, Teacher, we know that you're... 
He said, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the great miracles that you're doing unless God's with him. And so Jesus talked about the new birth. And in verse 7, Jesus said, Marvel not, I say to you, you must be born again. The same must that undergirds our obedience to the gospel also undergirds the principles of worship. And then Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit. This has to do with our attitude in worship. Worship involves mental engagement. In other words, when we come together, the word worship, as I said a moment ago, means acts of reverence paid to deity. So we are here as participants. We are participating in the acts of worship. Thus far in our worship, we have been privileged to sing praise to God. Not only are we directing our praise to God, but we are, as Paul would say, teaching and admonishing one another. That requires thought, mental engagement, as I said a moment ago. The prayer that was led by Lee just a moment ago. As he led our minds in prayer to God, we were following along. And then as we think about the Lord's Supper. According to Scripture, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are, we are reminding ourselves of the vicarious suffering and death of Jesus. You remember, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but let a man examine himself, and then let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So worship involves, it requires, if you please, Mental activity, mental involvement. Now, we can come and just occupy a pew and not engage in the various acts of worship, but we're here to worship, to glorify God, aren't we? And then finally, Jesus said, God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. This has to do with our authority in worship. In other words, we're appealing to Scripture. We want to make sure that what we do is found in the Word of God. As Paul said on one occasion, what does the Scripture say? That's our guide. That's our pattern. So we talk about these principles that, that govern our worship to God. But what about our pattern for worshiping God? When I read the New Testament, there are basically five acts set forth in Scripture regarding our worship to God. Every act is important. I do not believe that any one particular act of worship is more important than the other. I would grant that the Lord's Supper is extremely important, but so is singing, so is praying, so is giving. So is being taught by His Word. And so when we look at what the Bible has to say, we begin with the Lord's Supper. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 20 that the disciples came together on the first day of the week for the purpose of partaking of the Lord's Supper. We have that precedence set forth in Scripture. You remember in Acts chapter 2 verse 42, we read of those who obeyed the gospel in verse 41. In verse 42, the Bible says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the breaking of 
bread and prayers. The breaking of bread and prayers there, I believe, have to do with worship. So when we come together on the first day of the week and as we, as we reflect upon the death of Jesus, the bread, of course, reminds us of the body that was given in our stead. You remember Jesus said, This do in remembrance of me. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, As often as you eat this bread, he said, You show forth the Lord's death till He come. Peter would tell us in 1 Peter chapter 2, that Jesus bore our sins in His body on the cross, that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. So you think about Jesus dying on Calvary. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are reminding ourselves of that body that was given in our stead. And we could go back to the trial and think about Jesus as He was humiliated by His own creation, taunted, do you remember as Jesus, the Bible talks about Jesus hanging upon that cross. And they said to Him on that occasion, if you're the Christ, the Son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe you then. Jesus was vicariously suffering and dying for our sins. Paul said, Him who knew no sin, He became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That body that was given on Calvary, that was the sinless Son of God. Jesus, you recall in John chapter 1, was seen by John the Baptist on one occasion. And John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Lord Jesus was born into this world so that He might die for us, to redeem us from all iniquity. And then the cup, the fruit of the vine, Jesus said, This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Every time that we partake of this cup on the first day of the week, we are reminded of the precious blood of Jesus. As Peter said, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Jesus shed His blood on Calvary so that all of our sins might be washed away. Now you think about all the animal sacrifices that were offered under the patriarchal period, under the Mosaic dispensation. All of those sacrifices anticipated the coming of the death of Jesus on Calvary and the shedding of His blood. Jesus, however, came and with one sacrifice made it possible for us to enjoy forgiveness in the most absolute sense of the word. So listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Paul, as you well know, had been a Pharisee. He had, he had been blessed to sit at the feet of Gamaliel, very knowledgeable in the law of God. He had persecuted the church, converted by the Lord, baptized into Christ by Ananias, Paul knew something about forgiveness. And Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 talked about the fact that he had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, a haughty or insolent man. He said, 
but I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Listen to him, of whom I'm chief. So can you hear him in Ephesians 1 verse 7? When he said, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Did Paul know something about the grace and mercy of God? Did he know something about the love of God? The answer is yes. Yes. So as you go back to the first century and you see Paul and those who were with him in the city of Troas as they were partaking of the Lord's Supper, do you not think it was meaningful to him and to those with him as they recounted the body that was given the blood that was shed. There is a second act of worship. First, the Lord's Supper. But a second act is singing. According to the Apostle Paul, we sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Our singing is directed upward, yes. But Paul said, as a result of our singing, as we sing, he said, we teach and admonish one another. How so? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Think about the teaching that is done every week through our song service. I said a moment ago that as we partake of the, as we partake of the various acts of worship, it, it requires mental engagement. We've got to lock in on what's going on. So as we sing the various songs in our worship from week to week, and by the way, we ought to come together and we ought to sing joyfully and gladly to God. We ought to be grateful for all the blessings and favors that He's bestowed on us. As, as the psalmist said many years ago, enter into His presence with singing. To think that we can lift our voices in rhythmic melody Unto Him who created us and who has, as I said a moment ago, redeemed us, who sustains us. Our singing is a viable part of worship. One of the things that is unique to Churches of Christ is we do not have a choir group. We do not have someone stand before the assembly and sing a solo. And the reason is because in Scripture, we're taught the importance of corporate worship. Everyone, you can't worship God in proxy. Everyone is involved in singing praise to God. Everyone is involved in the various acts of worship. Now, another unique feature to our worship is that we do not use mechanical instruments of music. It's not because we can't afford them. It's not because we have a disdain for instruments of music. The reason is because we do not believe there is biblical authority for instruments in worship to God. So we don't use them. Paul said, sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In the Ephesian letter, he said, sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. According to Paul, the instrument that is to be plucked or played as we come together is not a mechanical instrument, but rather it is the heart. The chords of our heart 
are being plucked as we sing praise to God. And then there is a third act of worship, and that's preaching. In Acts chapter 20, as we read of Paul in Troas, the Bible tells us that he preached the gospel on that occasion. Now Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 2, to preach the word. As we preach the gospel from week to week, as we meet together, there are really a couple of basic reasons for doing that. Number one, we preach the Word to save people from sin because we understand the power is not in the messenger, but rather it is in the message, isn't it? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We preach the Word. We don't preach about the Word, but rather we preach the Word. We preach the Word because we realize it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the ability to cut to the heart to cut to the chase of the matter, if you please. Do you remember on Pentecost Day, Peter and the other apostles preached the gospel in fullness for the very first time. And as they preached on that day, the Bible tells us those who were present in Jerusalem, they were cut or pricked in their hearts. So they wanted to know, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter told them, repent, be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. So we preach the gospel because we understand it's God's power to save. But we also preach the gospel because we believe it has the power to keep those who are saved, saved. In other words, it builds us up. It edifies us. Do you remember in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, when Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then He went on to say in verse 20, in verse 20 Teaching them to observe all things. Every week when we come together, we come so that we might be fed from the Word of God. Didn't Jesus say, it's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? God's Word, as I said a moment ago, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. There has to be familiarity with the Word of God because ultimately that's what's going to judge us on the, on the last day. Paul said in Romans 2.2, 2, we're going to be judged by truth. And Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. In John 12.48, Jesus said, He that rejects me receives not my Word, has one that judges him. The Word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. So when we come together on the first day of the week, I recognize the importance of the lessons that are to be presented. Understanding that God's message enriches the lives of people. It has the ability to save. It has the ability to keep those who are saved, saved. Paul said, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We're here to try to encourage one another. Why? Because we want to go to heaven, don't we? The goal is to one day be in the presence of God. We're like those ancient people spoken of in Hebrews chapter 11. The Bible says they look for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Are you on the road to heaven? There's another aspect of our worship 
And that is praying. Lee led us this morning in prayer to God. And as we come together on the first day of the week, we come together to offer prayers unto the God of heaven. Now you think about for just a moment the fact that we have the privilege to stand before God and to lift up our prayers to Him. How many of you have had the opportunity to fly from coast to coast? It's amazing as you fly and you look down as you begin to make your descent. And you look down over a large city and you see lights everywhere. As you continue that descent, you begin to see houses and neighborhoods and buildings and corporations and various businesses. And you wonder, who's working there? Who's living there? How many live in that home? How many are working in that particular business? What are they doing? Are they happy? Are they sad? We don't know, do we? We have no idea. But there's a God in heaven who knows. And the Bible says the very hairs of our head are numbered. And to think that we have the privilege of coming into the very presence of God and lifting up prayers to Him. Do you believe in the power of prayer? You know, the Hebrew writer said that we're to draw boldly under the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. I'd encourage you to go back and read. Read the book of Acts. Read the epistles that were penned by Paul. And note the emphasis on prayer. The church of the first century, they were a praying group of people. So when we talk about what's right with the church of Christ, and as we think about the principles that govern our worship and the pattern that we have, it's all found right here in this book that we call the Bible. Now there's a final act of worship, and that is the giving of our means. We're not to give grudgingly or of necessity, but rather out of gratitude we give back to the God who ultimately owns everything, doesn't He? Doesn't the Bible say the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof? God said in Psalm 50 many, many years ago, He said, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Look, everything belongs to God. When it's all said and done, we are but stewards of that which has been entrusted into our care. And you think about, think about being a steward for a minute. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, that that which is required of a steward is that a man be found faithful. Are you a faithful steward of that which God has entrusted into your care? So we give back. And really the template that ought to guide our giving is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 9. When Paul said, you've heard the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He were rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might be made rich. When you think about what God has blessed us with, it's not hard to give back, is it? I want to close today by saying, worship is vital to the New Testament church. 
And so as we begin looking at some of the identifying marks of the church, those features that are unique to the body of Christ, when you look at what the Bible has to say, you see that there are principles that govern our worship. There is a pattern that governs our worship to God. Our goal is to simply do things in a Bible way. We want to make sure that we follow the New Testament as the Apostle Peter said many years ago, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. What we want to do, when somebody asks us a question, why do you do this, why do you do that, why do you believe this, why do you believe that, we want to be able to turn to the Bible and say, this is what, this is what the Bible has to say. And why is that? Because the Bible is what's going to judge us. It's not what I say. It's not what some other preacher says. It's not what some teacher says. It's not what some manual of faith says, confession of faith. It's not about a catechism. It's about what does the Bible say. Look, if we follow what the Bible says, we'll never go wrong, will we? To do Bible things in Bible ways. To simply be a New Testament Christian. Nothing more, nothing less. If somebody were to ask you today, what are you? I would hope and pray you would say, I'm a Christian. What church do you belong to? I belong to the church that belongs to Christ. In other words, Jesus bought, as I said, the church. He built the church. It belongs to Him. And so we look to Him for guidance. If you're here today and you're not a member of the body of Christ, we've talked about what the church of Christ teaches in salvation, and we have said the church of Christ is right in what she teaches about salvation. What does she teach? Exactly what the Bible does. Acts 2, verse 38. If somebody were to ask me, what do I need, what do I need to do to become a New Testament Christian? I would simply say, here's what Peter said. If we do what Peter said, then we become what they became in the first century. And what was that? Just a member of the church a member of the body of Christ. And what did they do? They were instructed to repent. They already believed in the Lord Jesus. They were instructed to be immersed in water so that they might enjoy the forgiveness or remission of their sins. If you're here today and you haven't done that, we, we would beg you to do that this day. If you're here today and you're not what you ought to be and you need the prayers of the church, maybe you're struggling in life and you simply need God's people to pray with you and for you. We'd be happy to do that with you today as we stand and sing.